Welcome to Pursuit of Justice. I am Harriet Hendel. Ten years ago, I saw an article in my local paper, the Sarasota Herald Tribune, which changed my life. The picture accompanying the article featured a man surrounded by his family and his lawyer. He had been released from prison after spending 35 years locked up for a crime he had not committed. That man is Jamie Bain. It is because of his story that I decided that day to get involved with the Innocence Project of Florida. I knew there were people accused of crimes for which they were not guilty, but my awareness has been sharpened over the last 10 years. To that end, I have been teaching others about this miscarriage of justice. I am on the board of directors of the Innocence Project of Florida. In doing this podcast, my hope is to shine a much needed light on wrongful conviction, the causes, the victims, the impact on their families, the tireless work of innocence projects all over the United States and the world, the exonerees, the lawyers working pro bono for all of these people. Just for a moment, I'd like you to ponder a couple of questions. What if someone you love or you were arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for a crime, but were innocent? What if the lawyer you hired was incompetent and you were out of money and out of options? What if years and years had gone by and you or the person you love was still behind bars? Where would you turn? And how often do you think this scenario happens? The best estimate is there are about four to five percent of those now in prison who are innocent. There are approximately 2.3 million men, women, and juveniles in prison. Let's do the math. That means there are maybe 100,000 people who should not be, be, not be behind bars right now. Records have been kept since 1989, just 30 years ago, by the National Registry of Exoneration a project run by the University of California, the University of Michigan Law School, and Michigan State University College of Law. They track every case of wrongful conviction in the U.S. And if you'd like more information, go to their website, National Registry of Exonerations. Currently, there are 2,492 cases documented. Each case is posted in great detail. Last year alone, 151 people were released from prison, regaining the freedom they had lost. Who is behind these exonerations? Innocence projects exist in every state in the United States. In addition, there are projects in nations of the world like Australia, Italy, Brazil, the UK, the Netherlands, Canada, and Taiwan, and Ireland. These nations and the U.S. are part of something called the Innocence Network. To familiarize my listeners with the history of the Innocence Movement, I'd like to introduce Kate German, who has been part of the very first project dedicated to freeing innocent people from prison. Long before the first Innocence Project was initiated in New York City by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, there was Centurion Ministries, 
in Princeton, New Jersey. Founded by Jim McCloskey in 1983, um, Kate is going to tell us more. Let me just tell you just a little bit about her. She joined Centurion Ministries in January of 1987 after reading an article in the New York Times about Jim McCloskey's pioneering work on behalf of the wrongfully convicted. She thought he might need some help. They met, thought they could get along, and for 30 years worked shoulder to shoulder to free the innocent from prison. Prior to that, she was a businesswoman and community activist in Mendocino, California, where she lived with her family for close to 20 years. With Jim's retirement in May of 2015, Kate became the executive director of Centurion. For the time being, Kate has had to put aside her passion of working in the field on cases until some of her hopes and dreams for Centurion come to fruition. Welcome, Kate, to our broadcast, our first podcast called Pursuit of Justice. Um, I would like to ask you uh, how, what motivated you to join the founder of Centurion way back in 1987? Hi, Harriet. That's an excellent question, and I frequently ask that. And unfortunately, I don't have a really um, great answer. The universe did not speak to me. I just um, had seen uh, in 19, November of 86, I, it was the first time Jim McCluskey, the man who started Centurion, got national attention for his work on behalf of wrongly convicted people. It was his third exoneration. And I opened up the New York Times. My husband and I just moved back east from Northern California, and I saw this man was doing this interesting work in Princeton. And in this article, there was a picture of him sitting on a chair talking on what appeared to be a princess phone um, surrounded by clutter. And after reading the article, I thought, well, this guy needs my help. <laughs> so I called him up. We met thought we could get along, and in January of 87, I joined him and um, have never looked back. In the very beginning, um, I created systems for keeping track of the letters and the petitions and documents that we had received. To back up a little, the way Jim worked in the early days, he He's an extremely methodical man, um, and so on his first case, that inmate, you know, proclaimed his innocence, and once he started working on his case, he then told Jim um, about another inmate at Trent State Prison in New Jersey who was innocent, who then told him about another inmate, and so that was his very early process for referrals, and then, of course, he would thoroughly vet each um, um, person that was suggested to him, mm -hmm. but but as a result, he would only work on one case at a time. And once he got national attention in November of '86, he literally was on every major mm. morning news show. He was in every major newspaper. So the the mail just flooded in uh, to his room at a house in Princeton. New Jersey, and he had not cracked even cracked open any of the letters yeah. or packages, and so 
that was my job in the early days was to crack all these open, read them, and start figuring out ways to um, respond and assess and keep track of these requests for help. Now, what we haven't mentioned, Kate, is what um, motivated Jim McCloskey to do this at all. And so his story is also very interesting. Can you tell us what how he got started? Yes, Jim McCluskey's story is far more interesting than mine. <laughs> um, Jim was a um, businessman who figured there had to be more to life than just making money. And um, a pa- his pastor suggested that he go to Princeton Theological Seminary and seek answers there. And, you know, he was on the normal seminary path, intending that he was going to eventually have a church. And part of his field ed work that he chose as part of his seminary training was to minister to the inmates at Trenton State Prison, which was about half an hour uh, south of Princeton. And when you do that, what you do is you go right on the tiers where the inmates are. They're in, they're in their cells, and you walk on the tier, and you go from cell to cell to cell, listening to whatever their complaints are, and you offer them prayer. And that's supposed to be the beginning and the end of your relationship with the incarcerated person. But Jim being Jim, um, a man told him that his name was Jorge de los Santos, told Jim that he'd been wrongly convicted. And for Jim, that was a complete anathema because he was a very much a, a um, be- believed that there was the American justice system was the best in the world. And he was pretty um, right-wing in his thinking about America, you know, uh, is always right. And so... Um, you know, Jim moved on um, to the next cell, and then when he came back next week, the Mr. De Los Santos gave him more details about his case. And over time, Jim became intrigued and asked for uh, Mr. De Los Santos's um, record of his case. Took it to his, uh, you know, uh, Thanksgiving holiday at his parents' house in Florida, read the record, and came back believing that Mr. De Los Santos was indeed innocent, and so he went to Trenton to talk to Mr. De Los Santos and told him, good news, um, I absolutely believe that you are an innocent man in prison, And to which um, Mr. De Los Santos said, well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going <laughs> to just go home to your church and pray for me and leave me here? And Jim being Jim... Uh, dropped out of seminary for a year to work on Mr. De Los Santos's case. He had to figure out, you know, how to investigate a case and who to talk to in the investigation. And uh, then uh, after a year of investigating, he dropped back into seminary while he was still continuing to investigate his case. And within three years, he'd brought, or actually a little less than three years, he'd brought forward the chief witness who testified against uh, Mr. De Los Santos, and he completely recanted Mm. his trial testimony. And then Jim hired a young lawyer named Paul Castellero, who um, 
continues to work with us to this day. In fact, now he's our legal director. Um, and he, Paul put together a petition and eventually a, um, in uh, 1983, um, a federal district court judge declared um, Mr. De Los Santos's case um, unjust and freed him from hmm. the courtroom. And now in those days, when we won a reversal of a conviction, um, our folks were freed almost immediately, if not immediately, and often with no bail. And if there was bail, it was very, very minimal. Mm-hmm. And um, and then within three months would be a long time, the prosecutor would toss the indictment and the case would be over. Now, of course, as you know, Harriet, because you work with the Florida Innocence Project, um, these prosecutors fight us every single step of the way. So every win does not mean our client is coming home. It just means, you know, we've climbed up the ladder one step, but we can fall back down pretty quickly if we lose in the next court. But nonetheless, Mr. De Los Santos was freed. He was reunited with his wife. And um, and then at that point, Jim finished out seminary and decided and had already begun working on the next case, which was uh, a man named Nate Walker, who had been convicted of a rape he didn't commit. And that was the beginning of he decided that would be what he would do for the rest of his life mm-hmm. was to work on behalf of wrongly convicted people. But, of course, back then he was the only person that's right. Speaking about wrongful convictions in this country, there were a couple of social psychologists who'd written obscure books that very few people read um, on the subject. But um, he was a voice crying in the wilderness, and um, and he he gave up his life literally for people he didn't even know. Jim's always lived until recently until he moved into a house. Um, a number of years ago, but he, he always lived in like a one room <laughs> place, you know, very monk like in terms of his <laughs> devotion to these folks that we serve. It's um, his commitment really just takes my breath away. What a story. I was going to ask you about um, that first man that Jim met. How long had he been in prison before he met Jim? Well, he was convicted in 75 and probably was in prison a good year before he was convicted and was exonerated in 83. So what is that, eight years? About that. Okay. I was curious. Um, yeah. And and also back then, um, when we took on cases, we got guys out much more quickly than we do now. Now, it, it you know... As I said, um, a reversal of a conviction doesn't mean that our fo- our people are walking out of prison, and this is true pretty much across the board, unless yeah. unless there's a DNA exclusion. And even then, you oh, know, we had a Patterson, then. New Jersey case recently that you know they ridiculously fought us on. Yeah, right, right. We know. Um, I also wanted to ask you, uh, what are the highlights of these many years for you as you look back over decades of work with Centurion? I think um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I've ever been asked it before. 
for me, what's so fulfilling is to have come to know intimately these remarkable people that we get to serve. These folks um, that we get to serve are extraordinary in that they've forgiven everybody who put them there and the guys who haven't overtly forgiven forgiven their offenders have moved on from from having any sort of negative emotions towards them because they want to live free and you can't live free if you're carrying a big grudge or or hatred towards someone which by the way those people have earned uh their hatred but um the folks that we serve just completely blow my mind um, how whole they are and how graceful they are as they walk this wor- navigate this world that is brand new to them. I mean, they're the most remarkable people you could ever meet. And that's been the largest impact on my life is to have these people added to my family. In fact, my children you know, when they know we're getting close to getting somebody out, my, the sons will always say, so when are we meeting my brother or my sister? <laughs> you know, That's great. Um, That's great. They're that, we're that close to them. I, I have experienced something similar in my involvement with the Innocence Project of Florida in meeting a number of exonerees, and I would agree with you in saying I wonder why they are not more bitter and more angry. And they are not. They are not. No. They're better than we are. They are much better people Mm -hmm. than we are. They, you know, when I get, you know, pissy about, you know, somebody taking my parking spot, I think, (laughs) Jiminy Cricket, really, this is where you're going to set the bar when these folks aren't even mad at the police and prosecutors. Which which they have every right to be. uh, No kidding. Yeah, they're extraordinary. Absolutely. Well, we, we had spoken before uh, you were invited to the podcast today, and we talked a little bit about the concept of blind focus, and I'm going to okay. address, address that in a later podcast, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about that uh, in the time we have left. Sure. Um, having done this work as long as I have, um, you know, oftentimes um, those of us in the innocence world, we talk about, you know, bad forensics, bad identification, jailhouse snitches, all that kind of stuff, which is certainly true in every single one of our cases. There are at least one or more of those aspects are present. However, for me, ground zero for someone being wrongly convicted is blind focus by a It starts with uh, law enforcement and then goes to the prosecutor. And by that, I mean, um, for example, Richard Miles, a young man with no prior criminal record, um, was walking home from after spending an evening watching TV with buddies. And he stopped at a payphone to uh, tell his roommate that he was coming home to leave the door unlocked. Um, And... While there, um, the cops were looking for um, an assailant who had just 
shot someone at a gas station but had driven off in a car but the assailant was wearing a certain kind of t-shirt and long pants richard on the other hand had a completely different kind of t-shirt and was wearing shorts and furthermore richard was a solid 20 years older than he was 19 and the assailant was somewhere in his 30s and but richard because he was on the phone basically across the street from the shooting, they picked him up and he became the guy. Mm. You know, it was absurd. And then the police knew that the, the man who was the victim in the case had been in an altercation with someone earlier in the evening and had driven, and the, the person he'd been in the altercation with had driven away in the car that was described the same way the car that the assailant got in at the at the shooting. Richard wasn't in a car. He didn't own a car. He didn't have a car. He, you know, <laughs> there was everything wrong with this case. And plus, he had no prior criminal record. So the notion that you go from zero to shooting somebody um, at a crowded gas station is absurd on its on its face. On top of it all, he had no GSR on his hands. And um, so, okay, so the police have a blind focus. They do get a, an eyewitness at the scene of the crime to say, well, yeah, maybe he looks like the guy. But other witnesses said, absolutely not, that's not the guy. But, okay, so they proceed with him. But at some point, the prosecutor who's going to take this case to trial and going to take, or even to the grand jury, is going to be looking over everything and should, by all rights, have noticed this is not right. This is not the guy. And, you know, sent them back out to find who who were the people in the car that had the original altercation with the victim. But they didn't. Everybody proceeds forward because in these old cases, in not these old cases, but in these murder cases where there's a big sentence riding on a conviction, everybody moves up the career ladder when the case comes to what they consider a successful conclusion, that is a guilty verdict. Right. It's outrageous. Yeah. And I can go after case after case after case after case of ours where, okay, so the police questioned our person who had the same name as somebody who was supposed to be at the crime or whatever it is, but they should have immediately been released because there's no way that they had the right person, but they don't do that. They instead do everything they can to fit that square peg in that mm -hmm. round hole. And, that's a, I and they saying, succeed. That's a great, a great way to, I was going to ask you for how you would define uh, blind focus, but just what you said, um, almost putting the square peg in the round hole. The yep. ins insistence that, well, this is going to fit if we just try hard enough. Right. And if we smash it in long <laughs> enough, if we get an, a jailhouse, and also any case that has a jailhouse witness, you know, immediately yeah. they didn't have a good case. Right. Well, that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about all those uh, factors that lead into wrongful conviction later on. But this was something you and I talked about, and I thought it was very important for you to express your feelings about this. It's also my very, my very strong feelings about yeah, this. Well, and also, too. you know, another thing that needs to be said, that doesn't get said enough, 
is that because I think too often people who aren't inoculated by what we know about the criminal justice system, the dark side, um, you know, most of our guys had no prior criminal record. And, uh, and the ones who did, it was really dumb stuff when they were kids, stealing a soda from a gas station, uh, um, uh, um, stealing something in a store, dumb stuff as juveniles. They're now older and with nothing in their record. And, you know, these are not people who have hardy criminal records and finally got wrongly convicted for something, even though they were, no, no, no. These are, these are, even though we agree in this country that, you know, you're not, we're not supposed to be convicting innocent people, but in our case, our guys and women had, no criminal record or virtually no criminal record. So we'd like to disabuse, and I suspect it's a, true across the board with most of our innocence, most of the innocence world. Um, that's why they're especially vulnerable to a wrongful conviction is they don't take the Miranda warning seriously. Anything you say can and will be used against you. They want to, innocent people want to immediately explain, no, 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 you have the wrong guy. And they give them, the police, all the tools they need to um, change the time of death, undo undo their alibi or whatever it is to help smash that square peg into that round hole. Into the round hole, right. Well, I certainly appreciate your spending time with us today, Kate, and I'm sure there'll be an opportunity on a later podcast to have you come back. This is just the beginning uh, of a long conversation about wrongful conviction. And my thought was that um, Centurion and you and Jim McCloskey should be first up on the list. And I, well, I, thank you I, so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so very, very much. I would like to close out the podcast today um, by talking about a, uh, a day that is October the 2nd, and it is Wrongful Conviction Day across the country. Marking this day is relatively new, just a few years old. I have been thinking about a day coming up at the end of October, specifically on the 31st. I did a search on how much money Americans spend on Halloween, costumes, candy, and decorations. Would you believe $9 billion? That translates to about $90 a person. Seven out of 10 of us celebrate Halloween. Valentine's Day, we spend even more, $20 billion. So let's think about supporting Wrongful Conviction Day. Given there is an innocence project in every state, the smallest states might be part of a multi-state project, I'd like to ask you to locate a project where you live, look up their address, and send them a contribution in the amount you can afford. The lawyers and staff in those projects work pro bono, free of charge, for every client. So many of these nonprofit organizations depend heavily on private contributions. I thank you for at least considering 
making a donation. Thank you for listening today. Next time, we will meet someone from the Innocence Project of Florida. See you next time. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.